Are you ready to go? Buckle your seatbelts. This is a wonderful passage. It's a passage that uh, you don't think about as the kids go to the junior church. See you guys. It's a passage that uh, you'll probably read and close the Bible, say, oh, I finished my daily devotion. But there's so much going on in these these passages that I want to unpack it. And so we're going to have a a story that's kind of going to unfold like an 33 RPM old record. It just goes from one track to the next track. But uh, follow because they're all tied together. And as uh, as we open up this passage, I've entitled it Enlarging the Tent, and thinking about what's going on, uh, this is the breaking the ground and opening Europe. So we're going to look at this, and it's a significant passage that we will pass over a lot of times because we don't think about reading the scriptures in light of uh, with Mediterranean glasses. And so we've got to go back 2,000 years to think about what they began to see God do. And so as Habakkuk would say, look among the nations, because I'm doing a work, if you see it, if you perceive it, means you may not see God at work. And, of course, in the corners of the world where he's working, we wouldn't until you tell your testimony or other people come to share their story. Well, let me, you know, I'm waking up every morning. I'm still listening to Handel's Messiah. <laughs> and uh, that hasn't quit. I, I love that. And uh, it's deep, but... I, I, I go back and I think this is exactly what this passage is about. As he's talking about the prophet, priest, and the king, when the, come, when the Messiah comes, it says, every valley, and read nation, every nation, every low nation shall be exalted. And every mountain, the big nations, shall be brought low. And the hill nations, those that are in the middle, they, they'll be brought low, but the crooked will be made straight. The crooked nation will be brought to become a righteous nation. And the rough places made plain or they'll be smoothed out. And that's exactly what God is doing in this passage. So I want to look at some of these things because what we understand, God has promised from Abraham on to call out a people for himself. And then he provides a salvation uh, in the sacrifice of his son. Well... Jesus, the Messiah, the one who became flesh, begins to actualize that promise, and then he fulfills the promise, saying it is finished on the cross, and the thief gets into paradise, and, and then the, the whole idea that, that the resurrection comes and new life in Christ is made because this Messiah is going to bring a new kingdom. And that's where the Holy Spirit comes in. Because the Holy Spirit then, he applies that which Jesus did on the cross to your heart to know that you're totally without condemnation. God embraces you, loves you, welcomes you, has chosen you, got your name written in in the book of life and has got a place preparing for you. He wants you and me and others. But this is what the Holy Spirit does is to have people tell the story so that they can know about Jesus and his love. Well, so let me begin with this question for you. Uh, How many trips did Paul take? How many missionary trips were recorded? Do, 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 do. We understand the typical answer is three, but the right answer is four. 
there are four missionary trips, and he alludes to the fourth one. But it, the fourth one goes, he tries to get to Spain. Now, I want to put this into perspective geographically. Uh, and that's why I call this opening up Europe. Europe. If you go back into the Greek worldview, this is from the Encyclopedia Britannica, Ptolemy said that the Greeks thought about the world in terms of uh, three major categories. There's Europe over there, there's Asia over there, and uh, Libya and North Africa down there. So, But it is um, Israel-centric, Greek-centered. They see themselves as the center of the world. So, as we all do, uh, we typically do. Uh, same for China. China was the center of the world. And, uh, and so wherever you are in the world, you, you have the right and left. And, but this idea of Europe, the word Europe, E-U-R-Y-S, Eurus, means wide, and ops, from optical, means uh, eye, or the face. And so when the, so, when the sailors would go around Spain, when they looked at the northern coastline of Europe, they say their eyes would get wide and said, man, this, look how wide this land is. And so originally it meant the mainland because it was so wide. That's what the Greeks, some of the Greek scholars says that's where the word means. It's wide gazing, wide shoreline. But if you go back into Palestine and Israel, if you go to the Hebrews, uh, the Semitic language of Akkadia, they would have a different meaning. So in Israel, the word erubu erub, means sunset. And if you're in Jerusalem, where does the sun set? Well, where it always sets, <laughs> over Spain. It's the western, farthermost part of their understanding that from, from Israel, Erebu is the place where the sun sets, where it descends upon the distant western land or Europe. Asu means it rises in the east, where we get the word Asia. So from Asia to Europe, the sun in their world, that's as far as they could conceive because Columbus wasn't around yet and neither was Google. So, but the idea... The idea that Isaiah was talking about for this Messiah is that you're going to enlarge the place of your tent and stretch out your curtains of your dwelling. Spare not. Uh, lengthen your cords and strengthen your pegs, for you will spread. This message is going. Whether you see it or not, whether you're involved or not, this is what the Lord of glory is doing. And your descendants will possess a little garden and white picket fence in the house and two cars and a little dog. And No, no, no. He says it's too small of a thing if you're just thinking about your own house. You're going to talk about nations. There are men in Japan, men in Mexico, who I know are at the throne of God because of me. Being able to share Christ with people in a different nation, their names are written in the book of life because I've led people to Christ in those countries and other countries. And because of God using each one of us, the nations will become part of your heritage. You will influence people as salt and light. And that's what David understood. He says, all nations whom you've made will come into worship 
Now, this is not something that they're concerned about in Washington or other, but it's a concern for us because we know what God is doing. And he's working so that all the nations will come to worship him. And they shall glorify him. And he's doing this wondrous deed. If you perceive it or not, if you feel it or not, if you participate or not, this is what God is doing. And so this passage in Acts 15 is actually taken from Amos. And notice how they're using the Old Testament to ground their reasoning for what they're doing. They're biblical men and women who are back there thinking, okay, God, what are you doing on earth for heaven's sake? Well, I mean, not for heaven, but for sake of heaven. And so, but notice what Amos said, and Luke picks up. He says, after these things, I, the Messiah, will return, and I will rebuild, rebuild, reconstruct, those nations that are high brought low, those that are low brought high. I will balance, I'm going to work among the nations, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which is the place of worship. So enlarge that tent, enlarge that space, so that the nations will be able to worship. But I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it. Listen to these verbs. This is what the Lord God wants to do. This is the Lord you worship, and you say you believe, but do you see him doing this? Well, we'll get into this passage, because I want you to enlarge your vision of what God is actually doing. I'm going to rebuild. I'm going to restore, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. For thus says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago, so Gentiles, come on in, in a paraphrase. And what you've got here in Acts 15 is you've got the, the word of God that says, if worship is the primary value of the kingdom of people, that people know the Lord, they know his wondrous salvation, they know the glory, and they are restored and built up, what God wants to do is to address false worship and replace it with genuine sincere worship, if there are people who are wounded and have obstacles, they can't get to that, God says, I'm going to do something in your life to rebuild. If there are wounds, I will bring about healing. If there's damage, I will restore it to health. I will restore it, but where there are walls and there's resistance, God says, I'm going to move Whatever it is that's blocking you from me, I'm going after that. And that's what he's doing here, so that the rest of the Gentiles may seek and walk with me. But if the world is influencing you, Gentiles influencing the Jews, as opposed to the Jews influencing the Gentiles, or the Gentiles influencing the Gentiles, God says, I'm going to be at work doing a mighty, 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 mighty work and he says, to those who are called by my name. There's a calling on the Jewish person. There's a calling on the Gentile person. So there's no need to make a division, Jew and Gentile, because God's calling his people. And that's called the kingdom of God. And they would all seek the Lord. Now this is what Acts 15 opens up. 
with the idea that the Holy Spirit is on the move. And so <clears throat> to, to go back to understand that God is reigning and he's bringing in people out of the darkness and from exile into the promised land, just like he did with Moses, he brought the Israel out of Egypt and brought them into the promised land where they had to deal with the nations. Likewise, God is bringing the church, the liberated church of Jew and Gentile, into the captive nations. And so it's reversed. So the church is the liberator, bringing the nations into the kingdom of God. And so here comes Isaiah. And you know that song, and I can't sing it, and I won't, for your enjoyment. <laughs> I will shake. I will shake. And when you shake something, it's not just a, hey, bud. It's a real, it's a very, it's an earthquake. It's a shattering. And, and it indicates judgment. And when God says, I'm going to shake the nations, and I'm going to shake the sea, I'm going to shake the dry land. And Haggai says later on that, um, that when he shakes the islands, he's going to shake the world. Why? Well, he wants their attention. No, no. My son, when he would sleep in, you ever try to wake up your son to get ready to go to school? And when you shake your son, it means you're not going to stay in that place for another 15 minutes. You've got to get up and move. To shake means conversion. To shake means uh, to wake you up, to move you out of something. And that's what God is saying. I'm going to shake the nations. And when I shake the nations, what is desired by all the nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory. That's what the nations want is beauty and glory. The desire of the nations is the same phrase for the Messiah that they will want. The Messiah, says the Lord God Almighty, and a scroll when it is rolled together in every mountain and island, Cyprus, you have Crete, you have Cuba, you have Hawaii. God, God hasn't left any corner of the world without a testimony. And the Spirit of God is on the move Developing his people, making those rough places smooth where walls need to be torn down, wounds need to be healed, and the world needs to be set right. So here's what's going on. Remember last week I talked about Acts 15. Paul, Paul and Barnabas were up in Antioch. They were teaching. And the question came, well, these, these guys who came down from Jerusalem saying that these Gentiles need to be made Jewish. They need to be circumcised and keep the Torah and they do it our way. We want the Gentiles to be like the Jews. We want you to be like me. And so Paul said, wait a minute, wait a minute. You, you misunderstand something. God is doing something much bigger than your institution. And so Paul is saying <clears throat> to the people in Antioch, God is creating something brand new. But Paul understands the, the world that God is after, and says to Barnabas, hey, let's go over to, let's go visit those cities again. And Barnabas says, yeah, let's go visit the, in the first missionary journey. And then Barnabas says, let's take, let's take my, my nephew, John Mark. And Paul says, wait a minute, wait a minute. 
And so there's a disagreement about John Mark. There was no disagreement for Barnabas at this point and Paul until John Mark comes up. And Paul says, wait a minute, he's not ready. He's not, he's not, I don't want him on my team. I love John Mark. Paul knew John Mark from of old because he was involved with John Mark's mother. As, as John Mark's mother and Paul, they had a friendship. They, they worked together. So Mary, Mary, her name, the mother of John Mark, probably listened to Paul and when he was in Jerusalem. And so there was a connection. There was a relationship. But now John Mark's uncle, Barnabas, Mary's brother, says, I want to take my nephew. And Paul says, no, no. Do you realize, Barnabas, this is really going to be difficult, and I need people that I can rely on. And John Mark scooted out on us back there at Perga. Remember that? I don't think he's ready. It's not that Paul did not like John Mark. He just was trying to think, I need a team to accomplish this vision, and John Mark is not ready for it. Barnabas said, yeah, these, circum- these, these Gentiles, I understand they don't need to be Jewish, and so I understand where God is doing. But he also knew that John Mark would benefit from this trip. And so Barnabas' position, at least in this chapter, says, let's take John Mark. And Paul says, no, no. And uh, so he uh, says, I'm going to choose somebody else. But at this point, what you've got are five people up in Antioch who are thinking about this missionary journey. You've got Paul and Barnabas, and then you've got these two guys, Silas and Judas, and then John Mark. Now, you remember when the discussion was about should they be circumcised, Paul and Barnabas went down to Jerusalem and they said, no, they don't have to be circumcised. That was the council in Acts 15. They come back with two other guys, this Silas and Judas, and they said, we'll work with the, with the people in Antioch. And they did, and they taught. Imagine that Antioch is like Los Angeles. It's a big, big city. Jerusalem's a big city. These are city boys who are out there teaching people how to reach the metropolitan, the cosmopolitan, Gentile, Hellenized nations that are influencing the northern part of Israel. But Paul says, no, John Mark, you can't go. And so Barnabas and Paul go one way. Paul says, I need another companion. I'm going to choose Silas. We're going to go another way. Now, it's interesting. Let's look at these men for just a minute. John Mark, do you know who he was? He's the one who wrote the Gospel of Mark. Later on, John became, he's not a, not a dummy, but at that point in time, he just wasn't ready for the mission field because for whatever reason, his temperament, his personality, his attitude towards Paul. But he wrote the Gospel of Mark. And uh, I mentioned there that he was Mary's son. So he had a godly mother. Women have a strong influence. Grandmothers will have a strong influence on the family, as you'll see here again. So there's John Mark. Now, who is Silas? Again, who is this Silas guy? Not, he's only mentioned a couple of times, 
But when he's mentioned, it's, it's significant. He's a member of the Jerusalem church. And he's a good friend of Peter. This is, this is part of Peter's team. He was called a prophet. He had the gift of prophecy. So he's teaching the word of God, the will of God. And, and he was a Roman citizen like Paul. So these play into account. But more than anything, Silas had... Uh, the, the Spirit had his heart. And so uh, Silas was really given to serve. And that's what he did. And so when they decided to leave Antioch and go back to Jerusalem, Silas says, no, I'm going to stay around. I, I like this. And so Paul saw a volunteer spirit, a servant spirit. Can I help out, Paul? What can I do? And he saw that kind of mature, spirit-filled man in Silas. And he chose, Paul chose him. But Jude, Judas, you know who this is, of course. Danny Thomas knows who this is. Because he started St. Jude's Children's Hospital called the Apostle, the Saint of the Impossible. And so Judas, uh, he was content with what he had done, teaching with Paul and teaching with Barnabas and teaching with Silas and teaching with John Mark, probably. But Judas went back to Jerusalem. And now you're ready for the journey to kick off in Antioch. Now, Paul's second missionary journey. This is an interesting thing. 4950, depend on which scholar, which resource you get to. Again, about 20 years after Christ, this is fresh People are still growing, and, and the church is very small at this point, but you've got God on the move. Now, Paul's journey, according to one theologian named Robert Jewett, he, he traced this journey down, and he says, Paul's journey to Corinth, where they were going, ended up, if Paul were to walk 25 miles a day, that's a pretty aggressive walk, 15 miles, and you start off, and okay, let's the stop sign. But after you build your strength, you can get up to 20, 25 miles or whatever. It's still aggressive. But if you were to walk with Paul, taking the second missionary journey, you'd be on the road for 21 months. 640 days. Now, four months of that would be on the sea. And therefore, you would see that you need some constitution, some physical strength to endure that much walk. Well, you think about, that's a long way to give you perspective. Frank Giannino Jr. ran 3,100 miles across America. It depends on where you start and where you end, but one guy says it was 30, uh, another person did 3,700, depending on the route. But he did it in uh, 46 days. So you imagine you're on the road to Corinth, and for Corinth it was 5,178 miles. Now, if you're John Mark and you don't like mountains and you're not a mountain boy and afraid of changing you know, shoes every so often and carrying uh, money and finding food, it was, it was a rigorous trip. And Paul said, I can't get halfway over there and say, Paul says, I quit. So Paul says, I need somebody who's going to go with me all the way. 
And besides, John Mark is probably young. And whether he wants to live his life in the international realm or back in Jerusalem, it's, he's free. He wasn't anti-John Mark. He just says, this is the task that requires a certain kind of person that's really committed to me. And that's what he needed. And that's what he said. Because they would think they'd be on the road for three, two to three, four years maybe. That's a long time for a young man to make a commitment. So if you're not sure, and Paul wasn't sure, would Paul would Mark Peter out again? But notice, <clears throat> notice when they go up to this is the area they were. They went to uh, north into Derby Lystra, and this area right there is important for one reason: it's not their agriculture or the culture. It's because they became famous because of this guy named Timothy. And they picked up Timothy in the backwoods of Derby, Lystra and Iconium, and they're going to take this guy into the big cities. But Timothy was going to be a friend for Paul for 20 years. Timothy became a real uh, a, 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 a disciple of the heart set free, like Paul. And Paul worked with him. But notice, if you know Timothy's family, grandma and mom raised this kid. Timothy's dad was Gentile. He was Greek. But mom was Jewish. And there was a problem in the household because his dad didn't want him to be circumcised. So Timothy was uncircumcised, but he did everything else but, and Timothy was received in the church in Derby, Lystra, and Iconium. He had a great reputation, so he had no trouble with the believers. But Paul said, if I take him out of his little circle, of his comfort zone, and put him into another context who doesn't know his reputation, Timothy's going to be looked at funny. And therefore, when, when Timothy was taken to the Jews outside of his hometown, the Jews would not consider Timothy as being Jewish. Therefore, he is a half-breed, a mutant, an, an one-off. He's, he's, he's an oddball. And so the Jews would question Timothy's role. And so Paul would take him and train him and develop him. And eventually the question is, well, Timothy, if you're going to go with me, you're going to have to be circumcised because I'm going to be involved in some Jewish places and I don't want you to get the hassle that I've gotten. And so Paul took Timothy and had him circumcised. Now, this raises all kinds of questions. Now, just a minute, just a minute. Paul, you're being a hypocrite. You're being a hypocrite because Titus wasn't circumcised. And Silvanus and some of the other Gentiles, they don't get circumcised. Why do you have to do this with, with Timothy and not to us? Well, Timothy uh, is for Timothy's sake to be qualified. For Timothy to be circumcised didn't change his status one iota. Because in the Jewish system, he was supposed to be circumcised. And Paul says it didn't really make a difference. But for those outside, he would be free to say, yeah, I'm Jewish through and through. And for that reason, Paul had to take him. But now, 
the question of circumcision isn't the only question that Paul deals with in Acts 15. And there's something that's not in the text, but it's in the text. You know what I mean. Remember what happened about the Antioch problem? When the guys from Jerusalem went to Antioch and said, you guys got to be circumcised, that was settled. Okay, you, you Gentiles don't have to become Jewish to become saved because God has given you faith, God has given you the Holy Spirit, and you're just like us, one of the kingdom. So the Jews learned we don't have to make the Gentiles Jewish. But when they go to Antioch, there's a problem. Because the Gentiles were expecting the Jews to be Gentiles. What? Because when you go into the nations and you're crossing cultures, all of a sudden when in Rome you do as the Romans do, they become the dominant factor. So when you're in Antioch and somebody's eating pork or shrimp or clams, and you sit down and Peter sits down and says, oh, I guess I can eat this because God had to dirty those three sheets to say it's okay. I can eat dirty food. I can eat Gentile food. And so this, this issue, if you go back in Galatians, became an issue for Barnabas. Because if you remember the story, when Peter went to Antioch and ate with the Gentiles, and here come the Jerusalem boys, and they saw Peter eating with the Gentiles, but, they, but he's Jewish. Peter gets up and leaves and says, okay, I'm going to go with you guys. I'm going to eat with you guys. How could you eat that stuff? I mean, but he was free to do so, but the Jewish brethren hadn't had those experiences, and they weren't developed to understand. They were free to eat as well, but they didn't have that understanding. Peter confronted, was confronted by Paul, says, Peter, you're a hypocrite. And for the sake of the gospel, you can't be mixed messages. You're sending the wrong message to the Gentiles. You've got to be Jewish and keep these dietary laws. Well, the same thing was happening with the Gentiles. Was, they were expecting the Jews to take on the Gentile flavor of what it means to be free. Paul was confronting Peter. If you noticed, Paul also confronted Barnabas because Barnabas was in the same boat following Peter back to join the other guys. And I believe that there's some tension that was unresolved there that was underneath this conflict with John, Mark, and Paul. And there was something that began to crack in their relationship a little bit where there was a difference would Paul be comfortable with John Mark eating Gentile food? No, he probably wasn't ready. Was Barnabas ready? Well, yeah, he was ready, but he still had to work through these issues of being Gentile free in Christ to, to go all the way across to Spain. But Luke is very careful. Luke is very careful in this account not to say, Barnabas, you're wrong. And he's very careful to say, Paul, you're wrong. Because in a very sensitive way, Paul and Barnabas were both being developed by the Holy Spirit. And, <clears throat> and what would understand, make it more understanding, is this issue. When you expect people to be like you, you may be forfeiting the gospel. And so for the Jews to do that would be called Judaizing. 
for the Hellenizers, the Greeks, the Gentiles, for them to do that would be Hellenizing, Gentileizing. If you do it from one person to another person, it's called egocentric. If you do it from a nation to nation, it's called ethnocentric. If you're culture to culture, you call it colonizing. But you're imposing a system that you expect people to be like you. If you do it in government, it's called politics. <laughs> but when grace does it, blessed grace, it makes you free. It makes you free. And so what was going on was that the Spirit of God was not only working individually in Paul and Barnabas and Titus and Judas and, and Silas, but he was creating a movement to create two missionary teams. God is always at work behind the scenes. Though we just see the conflict up front, God is always at work. And so there's a new team, and the new team is Paul and Silas. And they're going to go on that 5,000-mile trek to Corinth. And you'll pick this up as we go in. And as, as a citizen of Paul, he had the same liberty as Paul did. But notice that they were sent out and commissioned by the Antioch church who commissioned the first time. Now, they go up to Troas. So they walk up this <clears throat> coast to pick up Timothy here, and they go over to Troas. Now, there's one thing I want to point out here that Paul is really learning as well to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit because they're going to have to move and they're going to have to cross over. But before he crosses over, Paul had an entirely different thinking. And Paul's thinking was not to go to Troas because he was called to go to Macedonia. But where Paul wanted to go, look at this, he wanted to go to Asu or Asia. Now, Asia is not China over there. Asia, this is Turkey area, the area of Turkey. Now, Paul had been through Galatia where the, 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 the Celtic, the Gauls were there, and he wanted to go north into Bithynia, and then he wanted to go into Asia. But I wanted to point out one thing. Notice the cities in Asia that are important because the cities are the seven cities in Revelation. And these seven cities, the timing was not right for Paul to go into southern Asia, but he was going to go into them on, on the third missionary journey. But he wanted to go there, but the Spirit of God said, No, Paul, I want you to go over to Philippi. But enlarge the place of your tent means I want you to go to those places that I'm sending you, and the place I want you to go to next is Philippi. And in Macedonia, Paul and Silas go over to Philippi. And so they were learning how to accept people, grow in the Spirit, stretching out their influence, strengthening their convictions, and they were going to go after Philippi because the Spirit of God was leading them. So let me leave you with a couple of thoughts. And this is the primary thought. On what basis... Do you accept people? On what basis do you fellowship with believers? On what basis do you fellowship with unbelievers? The young learner who still needs develop, like John Mark, needs growing, needs some mentoring. Paul wasn't the man. John Barnabas, uh, Barnabas was the man. But those who were 
locked into an institution and culture like circumcision and the Jews and traditions and the Torah, how do you relate to people that are different? How do you relate to people that are <clears throat> odd, really different, cross-culturally, who are more loose? How do you relate to people who are politically different, have different methodologies, different strategies, different emphases, different education? The question is, what's your basis for relationship? And for us, as Paul would say, the basis of that relationship is the gospel. Because the gospel is that which is going to rebuild, restore, and bring you rest, Jew or Gentile, and the grace of God becomes the basis of the message. And we love to tell that story. And so we do, knowing that God is the hope, the desire of the nations, and God will make a way. Whatever the way that is, he'll do that with you, as he did with Paul and Silas, Barnabas, and John Mark. That's the way God works. So look among the nations. Let God move you out in your relationships. Let me stop there. Father, thank you that you are at work. Thank you that you really do know what you're doing. Thank you that your grace gives us the sensitivity to your spirit. But how we need to learn that, we would just confess our need to you. And so, Father, <clears throat> as this story is opened up, would you open up here? at Chesterland and have us spread abroad to the right and left. Strengthen, strengthen our pegs, lengthen our cords. For your glory and our growth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.